Welcome to the Being Rare Podcast. I am your host, Sarita Edwards. Being Rare is an online resource hub and community conversations platform. We'll talk about living with rare diseases, medical complexities, disability, and special health needs. From time to time, we'll have some amazing guests to help navigate the conversation. Stay up to date on current episodes by subscribing to Being Rare wherever you listen to your podcast. Today's episode is an exclusive audio edition of the EWE Foundation's 2022 Leap into Advocacy Virtual Summit. Keep listening to hear from experts, researchers, advocates, and more. To learn more about the EWE Foundation, visit EWEFoundation.org. Edward syndrome, commonly known as trisomy 18, is a rare chromosome abnormality. The EWE Foundation is a 501c3 healthcare advocacy organization created to support families living with Edwards Syndrome. The EWE Foundation offers health literacy and community resources, comfort care, and financial support. Information at theewefoundation.org. To any of you who might just be joining the second session, I wanted to say hello and thank you all for um, joining at the 2022 Leap into Advocacy Virtual Summit. Uh, my name is Cheyenne Walmsley and I am a genetic counselor and project manager for the Genomes to People Research Program, which is based at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, if I can summarize G2P, it's really that we conduct research um, that explores what I like to refer to as our three tenets, which is the medical, behavioral, and economic impacts that the use of genomic information has on medicine. And um, so uh, through this work, I was given the opportunity to meet um, one of our lovely organizers, Miss Sarita Edwards, um, and also is the reason I, am, I had this opportunity to speak with you all today. So I'm very excited to be here. And um, so the title of our second session for today is Using Culturally Appropriate Resources to Influence Health Equity and Access. Um, but before I introduce you to our panel of speakers for today's session, I really just wanted to give you a quick introduction to how my personal career in genetics um, relates to health equity and access. So I'm just going to share a few quick slides. Great, um, and hopefully you all can see that. <laughs> Please give me a thumbs up if you can. Um, but um, so with the popularity of direct consumer testing, such as 23andMe, and also this surge of interest, um, I, I, I think we've been seeing in society at large regarding um, our ancestry, I really wanted to start by talking about uh, genetic ancestry and race in genomics. Um, as many of you may already know, race is actually a construct that's influenced by social, political, and economic um, factors. And in many studies, this is uh, race is typically self-identified. 
Um, and so what many people might not actually realize is that genetic ancestry does not determine our race and ethnicity. Um, it's actually loosely correlated um, through, which can be, and it can be estimated through genetic data and is really more so representative of historical geography. And so in continuing with this topic of genetic um, rate, uh, the idea of race and ancestry, I also wanted to highlight some of the disparities that we see in genomic research and databases. So um, NOMAD referenced here is actually a resource that was developed by an international coalition of investigators um, to try and aggregate and kind of harmonize all of the data that we've collected um, from world, um, from large scale sequencing studies. Um, and it may surprise you or maybe not that only, uh, that actually less than 10% of sequences are representative of individuals with African ancestry. Um, and in similar fashion, we also see that in genome-wide associated studies or studies that are really, um, their purpose is to help scientists identify genes that are associated with different types of diseases um, are also mostly of European ancestry. Um, so on this slide quoted at 78%. And so this lack of diversity we have seen in our own um, genetic studies. And so the project I'm referencing today is what we, as a pilot study um, that we refer back to as the BabySeq1 study. And so this was a study that used genome sequencing um, in newborns, about 159 babies located in Boston. And we did find that about 11% of babies actually had a significant health-related finding. Um, and even, um, and one of our other findings was that there was actually no evidence to suggest that families receiving this information were upset um, by it or that it um, significantly increased their healthcare costs. However, um, again, as I mentioned, this lack of diversity, almost all parents who enrolled were non-Hispanic um, whites. And of course, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into this. We only enrolled in Boston. Um, this was also a project um, that at the time was very controversial. And, and also some of that controversy lingers today about whether or not we should be doing this sort of expansive testing on newborns. Um, but if we look at the bigger picture, um, we also know that one, although not, not the major, not, um, the cause, but one of the major causes of this lack of diversity that we see in genomics um, results from historical injustices that have led to mistrust in research among minorities and has greatened um, some of these health disparities um, and inequities that we see today. Um, and so we're actually hoping to, well, we are doing a second iteration of the BabySeq study in which we hope to enroll a more diverse uh, cohort of families, um, including those who identify as Black or African-American um, or Hispanic and or Latino. And um, one of the very influential pieces of our study design and how we plan to do this is that we've convened a stakeholder board with, of 10 members with community representation from the three original sites that we plan to recruit from. Um, since then, we have actually expanded to a two additional sites, including Philadelphia and Detroit, which is not um, pictured here currently. But pretty much we met with our stakeholder board on a quarterly basis via Zoom. 
we do compensate them $1,000 um, for their time per, per year that um, they are involved in the study. And just in this first year of feedback alone, they have been very influential on many aspects of our study of design, which I have summarized on my final slide. Um, and this includes um, inclusion criteria, informed consent, sample collection, and cascade testing. So originally, we were going to require that two parents be, um, be required in order to participate in the study. Um, but it was our stakeholder board who really um, emphasized the um, spectrum of family structures that and 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 requiring this two parent um, two parents to participate could really be exclusive to many families um, with especially with the group that we're trying to recruit. Um, and so we actually expanded our criteria to um, include more babies and family structures by only requiring one parent or legal guardian. Um, and almost any baby. We also had our stakeholder board um, revise our informed consent form, which is probably the most important um, document within a study, getting a study started. Um, and this has actually been very influential to the Institutional Review Board, which is an administrative body that is responsible for protecting the rights um, and welfare of, their, of human uh, research subjects. Um, so they actually hope to use our um, consent form as a template um, for, you know, to have more accessible language for other studies moving forward. So we were very excited to hear that. Um, and then very quickly to summarize our last two points, um, we did also adjust our sample to a heel stick um, as it was less invasive. Um, for our infants. And also we removed requirements to collect samples of our parents and also the control group, meaning babies who would be randomly um, assigned to the group that wouldn't receive genome sequencing in this study. Um, we felt that if we, were, if we maintained uh, these requirements that it would actually potentially exacerbate some of the mistrust um, that we know we see today. And, um, of course, genetic testing is a family affair. Uh, we share many of our genes and DNA with our family members. Um, and so with uh, input from the stakeholder board, we also um, updated our protocol to offer optional testing for any parents and siblings of infants who are identified to have a health risk of some kind. Um, and so thank you for allowing me some time to review um, some of the work I've been involved in. And of course, you know, we have not cracked the code um, to resolve any and all health disparities. Um, but this work, um, you know, it's been amazing to work with the stakeholder board. And it's definitely inspired, uh, it definitely inspires me as far as the further work we could do to um, continue to combat health disparities and inequities. And hopefully by the end of this session, um, you guys will also be inspired if you're not already. <laughs> um, yeah, so without any further ado, I would love to introduce our next presenter, Dr. Shruti Mitkis, who is going to present on some of her work and experiences as the Director of Genetic Education and Navigation for Global Genes. Thank you, Cheyenne. Hello, everyone. Um, very nice to meet you. Um, Quick background about myself, like Cheyenne mentioned, um, my name is Shruti Mitkis. Um, I am not a patient. 
um, but I'm a patient advocate. My background is in um, human genetics. So um, I got my doctorate in human genetics and have since then worked in a bunch of fields um, related to rare disease. Um, I am now the director of genetic education and navigation at Global Genes. Um, um, some of you might know of Global Genes, but um, we are a patient advocacy organization. Um, and our focus is on patients that live with rare disease. And so I'm going to share with you um, my presentation that is going to talk a little bit about um, using culturally appropriate resources and the impact of um, culture on healthcare. Um, and before I start, I just want to, well, let me first share my screen with you. All right. Um, hopefully everyone can see, see my slides. Um, I did want to uh, start off by the disclaimer that I do not claim to be an expert in um, culturally appropriate um, talk in healthcare. Uh, I am learning just like I'm sure a lot of us are. I'm learning a lot from um, my colleagues that work at Global Genes, um, patients that I've spoken to, um, had the pleasure of meeting Sarita at um, one of our meetings in Philadelphia and learned a tremendous amount um, about the patient experience and how culturally appropriate resources can impact healthcare. And so please take my slides with, with that little disclaimer in mind. Um, so the title of my talk is Using Culturally Appropriate Resources to Influence Health Equity and Access. Um, so I wanted to start off very quickly by um, just highlighting culture as we define it. Um, it encompasses so much more than we might think of. Um, so it encompasses customary beliefs, any social forms and norms that we have in how we behave, um, and any material traits that can either be racial, they can be religious, they can be geographical, depending on where you come from, either in a country or um, on the planet. Um, and it can also be social groups that we um, subscribe to and belong to. Um, and I just wanted to put this slide up here so we can get a, a sense of and appreciate how all encompassing culture can be in one's outlook, um, not just in our day to day outlook on life, but also when we access healthcare. Um, so it also includes personal identification, um, how we perceive ourselves and what cultural group we belong to, um, language, the way we think about things and how we communicate those things within our group and outside of our group. Um, and as I mentioned um, before, it is a characteristic feature of our everyday existence. And so a divorce of culture from healthcare or really any other aspect of our life um, is not realistic and it cannot be trivialized at all. Um, culture, as I said, is all encompassing. I put down here a list of the things that one generally thinks of when one thinks of one's culture. Um, but again, this, is, this list is not exhaustive at all. Um, some of the key things that might impact a number of things, but particularly healthcare, could be um, a person's age, where they come from, um, 
how long they've lived in the country that they've lived in, their education levels, um, what language they speak, what their sexual orientation is, um, their political beliefs and how they see um, those beliefs being enacted out day to day. Um, and of course, the racial and ethnic group that a person belongs to. And like Cheyenne mentioned, not just um, belongs to in terms of how they look or what their genetic makeup is, but what they really identify themselves in and the group of people that share similar beliefs to them um, is what we refer to as their ethnic group as well. Um, and then socioeconomic status, we cannot um, divorce talks of culture with um, understanding the socioeconomic background that a person comes from and how that influences how they view healthcare, how they access healthcare, um, and how their, their beliefs about whether they can access that healthcare, how that changes depending on their socioeconomic status. So I just wanted to give a quick flavor of all the different aspects of culture and things to keep in mind when we talk about developing culturally appropriate material. Um, so the role of culture in healthcare, um, as I uh, touched upon briefly, healthcare is not something that is um, not impacted by a person's belief in their cultures. Um, it's influenced not just with our regular day-to-day -day beliefs and how we live and how what kind of language we speak and what kind of food we enjoy eating, but also our beliefs surrounding health in general and, and wellness and how we see illness and disease. Do we see it as an intrinsic problem within oneself or do we identify it as, as something that is a curse from um, an, a God that we might have displeased or do we identify um, well-being as um, something that is a community um, affair. So, so our beliefs in how we look at healthcare and health information are largely driven by our cultural context and where we come from. Um, so cultural respect of that has to have an important say and it and we've done studies where we know this has a positive effect on patient care um, so delivering services that are respectful of a person's background and are responsive to their health beliefs their practices and their cultural and linguistic needs is is extremely important if we want that um, service to be of effect in the population that we're targeting um, Cultural respect can also improve access to health, high quality healthcare. Um, so the more culturally appropriate the healthcare information is, um, the more accessible it is to the community that one is um, trying to impact. Um, it, we can enable organizations to function effectively, to understand the needs of the individuals that are accessing this information. Um, and of course, it is critical to reduce these health disparities and access to unbiased quality care. So unless um, we have a concerted effort of developing um, educational material and healthcare um, information and, and clinical trials, unless we make a concerted effort to develop those um, using the cultural perspective of the audience that we're trying to target, the effectiveness of our material is definitely going to suffer. 
cultural competence is um, the capacity, the capability to acknowledge and respect one's individual identity, ethnicity, language, and cultural beliefs. As as and and when I say um, not just acknowledge but respecting that this is a driving force in decision making in this person, and that's something that needs to be respected. Um, and I'll, I'll give subsequent examples of what I mean by respecting a person's culture when making decisions in healthcare. Um, so I wanted to highlight here really quickly um, a couple of examples that I, I came across where cultural barriers um, limit access to healthcare. And I'm highlighting here um, the experience of immigrants. Um, so immigrant patient provider interactions suffer because there is a disconnect, not only with regard to language, but also to culture. And these are direct quotes from this, um, this news article on this paper that was published. Um, and I've, I've provided the source here. Um, everyone is welcome to read it for themselves. But essentially, culture and language differences, um, lower socioeconomic status, and lack of knowledge um, seem to be key barriers in accessing healthcare within the immigrant population. Um, and so communicating with the healthcare providers, understanding the um, health directive that the provider is, is directing the patients to, um, that was found to be a barrier if the language that was spoken was not the same as the a patient that was accessing the care. Um, and here it says they are hesitant to seek care. Um, I think the authors are saying that immig immigrant populations in general um, are hesitant to seek care from Western physicians due to experience of stereotyping by physicians. Um, and this touches upon a, an important point about maybe conscious and unconscious biases that physicians may have just by looking at someone or seeing that they don't speak the same language as them. Um, there might be some perceived biases. Um, and the only way that one can tackle that um, moving forward is through education and creating um, resources for physicians to familiarize themselves about these biases that they may or may not have and then address the, the healthcare system through that, that means. So lack of cultural awareness by physicians affects communication. Um, and they are more directed with immigrant patients and they deliberately withhold information based on the belief that the immigrant patients will have limited understanding. And this is what I was speaking to when I said unconscious biases. Um, a lot of us tend to think that if someone doesn't speak the same language as us, they are somehow diminished in their capacity to understand um, directives as a physician or a health, as a healthcare person. And that is certainly an, a, a bias that we um, have to address because judging someone on their linguistic style and the language they choose to, to speak in and how that impacts their healthcare should not be one of the things that patients have to deal with. Um, another study or another article that I read recently and I wanted to highlight here um, just to talk a little bit about the inequities um, uh, that certain populations that are underserved, like in this case, black women, um, the kind of inequities that they face. So this um, was a poster that was presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting this uh, past spring. Um, and it talked about how the majority of black women with metastatic breast cancer don't get enrolled into research clinical trials. Um, only 40% of black respondents said that they were even offered a trial 
Um, and the author of this uh, poster um, made the comment that nobody even talks to us about clinical trials. And this highlights um, the need to understand what the bias is or what the um, barriers are in accessing care, particularly when it comes to race or socioeconomic, um, socioeconomic standing. The fact that physicians or research centers are not even offering clinical trials to patients, um, perhaps based solely on their race, um, is something that's alarming and is definitely more work needs to be done to educate um, physicians and healthcare providers and researchers and really figure out what is the reason that is um, causing this barrier for accessing clinical trial care. Um, this also impacts um, care moving forward and mortality and morbidity rates in um, patients, not, not just in cancer, but in wide range of disorders, including rare diseases, which is what Global Genes focuses on. Um, so, so the purpose of this slide was to highlight um, in your mind how pervasive it is um, that health inequity that doesn't take into account cultural um, sensitivity, how it can have widespread ramifications in a number of disease areas. Um, I'm sure many of you are very familiar with the graphic on the left. Um, this is the famous Dahlgren and Whitehead's um, model of determinants of population health. And I put this here just to highlight that if you see um, in this graphic, general socioeconomic, cultural and environmental conditions are sort of all encompassing. Um, they not only are a huge driver in population health, but also an individual accessing um, healthcare resources. Uh, so one cannot divorce socioeconomic cultural impacts from an individual who is right here at the, at the heart of things and their lifestyle choices that then, then impacts their healthcare. Um, and so the goal of effective health education programs as we're designing them, they have to be multifaceted. And um, here's a, a neat little Venn diagram that shows um, the, the content of our programs has to be patient-centered. Um, it has to be respectful of health literacy of the population that we're targeting and not be so full of jargon or difficult to understand words um, that have no meaning for a patient who just wants to understand what is the, the disease that they are dealing with. Um, so cultural targeting, as I mentioned previously, um, cultural competence, which is making sure that um, healthcare staff um, in one's organization are aware of, of the cultural biases that they might have and the barriers that certain underserved populations may face when accessing care and the underserved needs of certain populations. They might be um, populations that are underserved due to racial differences, due to socioeconomic differences, um, immigration status, educational levels, all of those. And so where all of those intersect is what would make a highly effective health education program. And as you can see, cultural competence is one of the key drivers of that. Um, so what are the results of, of having a culturally competent program? Um, there have been widespread studies and I won't dwell on this too much, but one, 
Studies have shown that improved patient outcomes are a definite consequence of creating culturally competent um, resources for patients. Um, so here are a couple of examples that I put here. Um, after a medical center introduced a bilingual Russian internist, to help resolve language barriers. Russian-speaking patients with diabetes experience significant reduction in their blood pressure and cholesterol um, because not only is the doctor, the physician, the nurses, the healthcare people, not only do they speak the language that you're, you're familiar with, but they understand your culture and where you come from and your belief systems. Um, and I also just wanted to point out language, as I, I say, um, is spoken language, but it can also be a, a linguistic barrier, it can also be um, someone who it does cannot speak and we need to be considerate of having um, sign language interpreters that are easily available that can do American Sign Language. And so that's a nuance of, of language that I just wanted to highlight here. Um, in another study, an inpatient psychiatric unit um, that incorporated Spanish language um, proverbs into their therapy session found increased participation and improved motivation and greater willingness to explore emotional topics among their Spanish speaking patients. So once again, not just having someone who's learned Spanish, but, but being able to incorporate things that people use in their daily lives, like proverbs and idioms that might be specific to that population. That makes, in this case, therapy, but it can be applied to other healthcare situations that makes that content that much more meaningful um, to the patient that one is speaking to. Um, increased patient safety is a widespread um, consequence of uh, culturally competent materials and training. Um, this is in the, I'm highlighting this in the setting of a hospital. Um, so there have been numerous studies and meta-analyses that show that um, in the absence of culturally competent care, preventable mistakes can happen. Um, and adverse events can happen. And that can be due to lack of being able to communicate clearly with a patient because of linguistic barriers, um, unable to explain the medication levels and, and the adherence protocol to patients because one is not sensitive to the education level of the patient that one is talking to. Um, and there are many, many examples of how patient safety can be impacted if one is not clearly communicating um, to patients in a culturally sensitive manner. And of course, increased efficacy and adherence to treatment. So like I mentioned before, if we're not able to clearly communicate to our patients um, or our patient groups and caregivers, if we're not clearly able to communicate how a medication should be taken, why it's being taken, what is the importance of screening for common or rare health conditions? Um, then it's more than likely that patients will not adhere to their treatment protocols. Um, so a PLOS One review um, found that Black men rated providers' behaviors and attitudes more positively after the clinic gave its providers cultural competence um, training. So clearly the outcome was a general feeling of a better healthcare um, in patients that access this information through this clinic. Um, in addition to raising patient satisfaction, it also increases the likelihood that the patient will follow the medical advice because they understand the importance and they understand culturally, if it's explained to them, they understand culturally why it's important for them to follow this medical advice. Um, reduce care disparities. Um, 
as I had mentioned earlier, the bar one of the barriers that um, among the many, many barriers that people can face is um, accessibility. So ensuring that language and culture and race and other factors, um, they don't become barriers in patients receiving quality care. Um, there have been recent studies that have shown that depending on one's racial background and one's racial makeup, um, the amount of time it takes to see a healthcare provider is significantly higher for Black, African-American and Hispanic patients compared to um, Caucasians. Um, the amount of time it takes for patients to see, not just see a, uh, their internist, but to see a um, specialist takes longer. And that might be because there might be medical gaslighting, like we heard earlier, um, where symptoms are not taken seriously or they're not taken seriously or understood because there's a linguistic barrier. So this all, it all kind of ties in together in terms of language and accessibility. And of course, decreased financial costs for patients and healthcare providers. So if we make the healthcare more accessible and we make it such that it is targeted for people that we are trying to care for, um, the likelihood is that our patients will adhere to uh, the directive of, our, of the medical doctors, they will take their medications when they need to, they will have um, health screenings, they will take better care of themselves. And that'll ultimately lead to a reduced financial cost for patients because it will not lead to more and more problems accumulating. And also for healthcare providers, if we have competent, culturally competent training for all healthcare providers, it reduces um, miscommunication, it reduces misdiagnoses, um, it reduces uh, things that errors that can happen in medical care that can also add to the economic burden of the disease and ultimately affect the healthcare provider's office as well. Um, I just wanted to touch upon the, the barriers to healthcare very quickly. Um, I already spoke about linguistic differences. Um, according to the 2020 US Census, um, almost 67 million people speak a language other than English at home. Um, and so that's a large chunk of people um, that might not feel comfortable accessing all healthcare information in English. Um, and so language can be a, a, a critical barrier in treatment and preventative care. Um, socioeconomic status, if one has limited or no health insurance, um, it could be the costs of treatment and the costs of um, diagnosis can be prohibitive. Um, and so being, being familiar with that and, and sensitive to the socioeconomic status of the community one is serving is important. Um, I touched upon immigration status earlier, um, but Latinx immigrants and, and mixed immigration status families face many more health inequities and barriers, not just language, um, including prejudice, discrimination based on their immigration status, um, and then fear of deportation, which is very real for a lot of people, and it impacts how they interact with their healthcare team, if they interact at all, um, and if they want to just stay under the radar, as it were. Um, sexual orientation um, studies have shown that women in same-sex relationships um, found to have significantly less health insurance coverage. They were less likely to have preventative care, and they were more likely to report unmet medical needs. And so that is an important um, chunk of the population that we sh we need to be culturally sensitive to and understand what their unique barriers are. Um, and there are 
have been tons and tons of data on how race and ethnicity um, impacts healthcare and disparities in health access and as well as health outcomes. So mortality, morbidity, um, amount of time to diagnosis between white Americans and people of color. Um, and I've also just left links here um, for you all to access um, at your time, but um, these are either scientific publications or reputable websites that we can use as um, good resources if we wanted to understand a little bit more about these additional barriers. Um, how can we improve cultural competence? So of course, that's the big the million dollar question. Um, some of the ways I've listed here, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but build teams of healthcare professionals that reflect the diversity of the patient populations that we're serving. So if a patient sees that their doctor, their geneticist, their counselor, they look like them or they understand their language or and their culture, um, they're more likely to listen to what one is saying and to understand uh, the information that one is providing. Um, and so building teams really that are diverse and not just racially diverse, but diverse in all of these points that I've mentioned here. Um, increasing provider training to respond with empathy to the unique cultural needs of patients. Um, so just because a patient um, is deemed to not speak your language or not um, have the same education level as you, that a lack of empathy um, when responding to care for these patients is something that is really something we need to, to educate physicians on. Um, I've talked about language accessibility, reducing these linguistic barriers, be it um, training more staff in the various languages that are spoken, um, hiring staff from those cultures, um, having a sign language interpreter available, things like that. Um, recognizing that individuals are unique and one cannot predict their behavior and attitudes simply based on their cultural backgrounds. And that, what I'm trying to say here is that we cannot judge a person just by looking at them and their culture. We cannot predict that this is how they will um, their behavior will, will play out just because they come from a certain background. Um, everyone is unique. Um, and so respecting the fact that an individual's choice might not be um, similar to their cultural background. Respecting a patient's choice based on their culture or religion. Um, we have to be respectful of when a patient denies um, care as well. It's their, their right, but I think understanding the reason they deny they deny care uh, might be an important step to understand how we can prevent that barrier. So what I mean by that is um, uh, if a patient comes in where their religious or cultural beliefs prevents them from a certain treatment, say um, a Jehovah's Witness patient who doesn't want to have a blood transfusion, it is imperative that doctors don't try to railroad them into having treatment that goes against their cultural beliefs, but work with them to see um, what is preventing them to have care. And then at the end of the day, if they do not want to have care, that's completely their decision. Um, improve patient health literacy by developing culturally appropriate educational material. And this is also imperative because a lot of the material that is either online or in textbooks um, is not diverse at all. It doesn't show racially distinct ethnic groups, people with different disabilities, 
if one doesn't see that in the education material that one is accessing, the likelihood of really paying attention to that and listening to that and educating oneself with that material goes down tremendously. Um, I won't spend too much time going down this list, but here's another list um, of ways that um, healthcare facilities and companies um, can increase cultural competency. Um, the last point I think needs to be highlighted that an organizational cultural shift is what's needed. Um, and so that one focuses on the person and not the disease or, in the, or the ethnicity that the person comes from. Um, I wanted to provide some concrete resources for everyone um, where they can uh, access some culturally, cultural information in healthcare. Um, so at your leisure, if you'd like to check out any of these resources, I think all of them are excellent ways to increase proficiency in, in cultural, um, developing cultural, uh, culturally competent res um, educational material. And why, and they also, these resources also talk about why it's important to even bother developing culturally and linguistically com um, competent material. Um, because I represent Global Genes, which is a rare disease patient advocacy organization, I did want to touch upon very quickly um, health equity um, and rare disease. So patients with rare disease, particularly those of color, um, have additional barriers on top of all the other barriers that we talked about. Um, there's a significant delay in a timely diagnosis, um, and it is significantly longer than people um, of other races. There's reduced access to genetic testing, um, and that comes hand in hand with reduced, um, uh, reduced availability of culturally competent genetic education resources. Um, and as we saw earlier, patients um, that from the metastatic cancer point of view translates to rare diseases as well. They're less likely to be offered and to enroll in clinical trials. Um, and of course, this is by no means all the barriers that rare disease patients face, but just to give you a flavor of additional um, uh, barriers that these patients face. And so the ways to address these um, is to create culturally appropriate educational material, which is um, one of the initiatives that Global Genes is um, doing currently, making culturally appropriate genetic education and family history material available for um, Black and Hispanic communities so they can understand the importance of it. Um, efforts to increase trust in medical professionals um, based on history and um, things we've seen in the past, there is a lack of trust in medical professionals. Um, and so accessing healthcare um, through people that are, might be community leaders or patient leaders that um, patients trust is important. Um, education of healthcare providers, like I've said all throughout, um, increased access to virtual appointments, um, which can help people who are um, of a lower socioeconomic uh, background that can't afford to go um, get into a taxi and go to the hospital to meet their appointments. Um, increased opportunity and access to enroll in clinical trials and even being talked to about trials that are available. Um, greater funding, of course, for research and treatment of rare disease that predominantly affect people of color. So specific rare diseases like sarcoidosis or sickle cell disease, which might be predominantly affecting people of color. Um, more funding 
for those kind of diseases needs to be allocated. Um, and then creation and support of centers of excellence that are exclusively or, or not exclusively, but targeted towards the care of underserved populations that are living with rare disease would be a key way to reduce this barrier to care that a lot of patients of color with rare disease face. Um, so finally, um, I just wanted to finally end with saying that a, a person should always receive quality healthcare, regardless of where they come from, what, what they look like, how they identify any of those factors. And a lot of work needs to be done um, to identify cultural barriers and then to address those barriers um, so that there's equitable inclusion of people from diverse backgrounds in accessing care and treatment um, so we can reduce the morbidity and mortality of a large number of diseases, particularly rare diseases. And I will end with that. So I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Mikus, for that honestly amazing, just like Chef's Kiss presentation. It was beautiful. Um, I think we can all appreciate the amount of effort that you put into not just defining what culture and cultural competence is, but really, um, you know, how to act on them. So I, I really appreciate the amount of effort you put into those slides. So thank you. Um, so at this point in time, we are going to take a 15 minute break. And when we resume, we will jump into our panel discussion. Um, so please take this time to stretch, take a bathroom bait, grab some water, um, and we will see you all soon. Okay, so welcome back everyone. I hope you've all been able to make it back to your seats. Um, so I'd like to again welcome back Dr. Mitkis um, and also introduce our two additional panel speakers for this afternoon, which includes Louisa Leal, who is the founder of the Akari Foundation, as well as my personal colleague, Bethany Zettler, who is a senior genetic counselor and project manager for um, Genomes to People. Um, would any of you like to give another statement to introduce yourselves before we get started? So, Dr. Mitkis, I just have a lot of uh, questions in my mind regarding uh, your presentation that I think would be a great place to start um, in this panel discussion. Um, one of the challenges um, that you identified that we face in providing equitable care is implicit or unconscious bias. Um, and also some of the ways, um, you know, that we, some of the steps we can take to either individually or even as an institution um, kind of overcome those um, and improve cultural and uh, competence and humility. Um, I think something that we often encounter in thinking about implicit bias is um, people often want to deny that they have any biases. Um, and, you know, a statement um, I think I've heard a lot in some of the um, heated sort of discussions that have been going on the last few years, for example, is a statement like, I don't see color. Um, how do you respond to a statement like that? That's a great question, Cheyenne. Um, and please, uh, uh, please call me Shruti. Dr. Mankasan. Oh, I actually can't so, hear your audio. Oh. Is that just me? Oh, sorry. Can someone, can everyone hear That was me. I apologize. Okay, oh, okay no worries. Um, I was just going to say, um, well, for, I was I was first saying that please just call me Shruti. <laughs> Dr. Mankasan, so formal. Um, that's a great question. So I, I think that the... I, the number one thing is to first recognize that not all of us, regardless of where we come from and what our backgrounds are, 
none of us are perfect, right? We always have something to learn and to not even acknowledge that there might be some biases that I might have, despite how, you know, open and how I think I perceive myself as not having a bias. So I think if someone says, I don't see color or I don't see race or whatever else they don't see, I think that's a moment to just stop and say, ask more questions. Like, what, what do you what do you mean by that? Because they might interpret that as something completely different that I don't see race um, versus someone else. And so I think the way I would approach it is turn it back and ask them to clarify, what do you mean by that? It, there's nothing wrong with seeing race. You, you, we, we're different, you know, I'm a different race than you and there's nothing wrong with seeing race. It's when we then start to associate certain beliefs or assume a person from a certain race will behave a certain way or un their understanding of a topic is somehow diminished because they're from a race. That That's the, the, the challenge there. And so the short way that I would deal with it is, is really ask the person to expand on what they mean by I don't see race. And then, and, and the broad context of that is everyone can be, can get, can benefit from cultural training, regardless of how good one thinks one is in their implicit or explicit biases that they might have. You're still on mute, Cheyenne. My apologies. Um, I'll get the hang of this. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, no, Shruti, uh, I think you're definitely right. I think, right, one of the biggest ways to combat implicit bias, right, is being able to talk about it and create it, creating those opportunities um, to, to explore, you know, why, why we feel that way and uh, normalizing, right, these conversations about the fact that we all have biases um, and, and what we can do to resolve them. Um, another challenge you also, um, you also, I think, pointed out a few times um, in your presentation had to do with um, language as a barrier. Um, and so I actually wanted to um, ask you, Louisa, because um, I know a lot of your work is providing resources in other languages, particularly in Spanish. Um, I was hoping you could give us more context as to how translation might be more difficult um, than people think and what, what is it that um, um, people might not quite understand about um, the complexity behind more than just, you know, translating something into, into Spanish. Sure. Um, what I was, um, what you were just mentioning, uh, Dr. Shutri, about uh, you don't see race, you don't see color. Oh, well, I'm sorry, someone else. But um, I can I can think of that. Like, it doesn't cross to my mind how not able to see that, you know, because maybe because I'm Hispanic and, and I go through, I've been through all that stuff, you know. It's hard for me not to see there's more than just certain race, you know. Um, but um, on, on, with your question, Shan, um, it, it haven't been easy, you know. When I started the organization five years ago, I started uh, focusing in um, in translations, and it was taking me weeks to translate just a little content like this because it wasn't just copy and paste on Google Translator. It was more than that. It was uh, it has to have a meaning because um, 
Hispanics, you know, we have, we, we come from a lot of different cultures and, and different languages, even though we all speak Spanish in some way, you know, we have different meanings, you know. Um, so I have to make a translation where it makes sense to a lot of different cultures. So it was very hard for me. Um, even though we had a conversation with my team, I think it was like a couple of weeks ago, we were doing um, this um, translation and it was just one little word, one little sentence, uh, the meaning of fill it out, like fill out uh, some something, right? A paper or something. And we have different, um, I have someone from Argentina, Colombia, the south of Mexico, and I'm from the north of Mexico. And we were trying to, to get, you know, uh, translate one little word and we all came with four different meanings. And it was like, this means this in our country, this means in, so, you know, it's more than just a, a, a translation, especially when it's something medical, you have to be extra, extra careful on how do we translate in any, you know, um, um, I'm lucky enough that I have uh, someone with a medical background in translations in, in our team um, because, you know, we couldn't just, I wouldn't feel comfortable of being just sharing information. I have seen where families, you know, try, uh, just copy and paste. And I asked them, you know, because I, I noticed this person in particular start posting all this and I was like, where are you getting all that information? Because we don't even have access to that information, you know? She's like, oh, I'm just copy and paste. I was like, no wonder, you know? So when I created a nonprofit, like I said, it was <clears throat> for translations and, and, and I realized really soon that it was more than just translating. You know, it was more about the culture. I love every single thing that you mentioned, Dr. Shutri, because you pretty much mention everything that I have to say here. <laughs> I'm done by, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, you pretty much, you know, put the nail on the coffin. Can I just piggyback on that real quick, what you said, Louisa, and that reminded yes. me of, you know, relying on Google Translate to make your Spanish language content, big mistake, right? So the cultural nuance and, and what you said about how the Spanish spoken in Spain is different from the Spanish spoken exactly. in Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it reminded me also of, of, of uh, a story that I read, which is very unfortunate, but I, I thought I'd highlight it here, is that it, um, a young man presented to the uh, to the paramedics with um, symptoms of, of feeling very unwell, and um, he passed out. But right before he passed out, he, this was in Miami, so he only spoke Spanish. Um, and right before he passed out, he said some words that. Um, had the word intoxicado in them, and the paramedic, right? I, I paramedic, see where you're going? For. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the paramedic um, who spoke broken Spanish um, assumed that he um, was intoxicated and was probably ODing and treated him accordingly. Um, turns out the young man had a brain hemorrhage um, that they didn't know about at the time. Um, which negatively affected his health down the road tremendously. But that word intoxicado, what he meant was, which can also have the meaning of feeling sick to your stomach and feeling nauseated, which is one of the symptoms of a brain bleed. Um, and so I just, and he ended up um, 
you know, paralyzed from that brain bleed and it led to a $71 million lawsuit with the hospital. But that being aside, that just tells you nuances where we sometimes think we know that a, a word because it sounds a little bit like the same word in English and what a huge impact that can have on a person's health and downstream. Um, I just wanted to highlight that, that it's, it's not just about hiring a few people that have a little bit of training in Spanish, say. It's, it's about that holistic approach of culture and the nuance of when I say this, it sort of means that. Um, I just wanted to throw that out there. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and like you said, you know, I, I got from the beginning, like a lot of people told me, why don't you just join another organization to translate, you know? one of those big organizations that are already out there. And, and I told them since the beginning, this is just more than a translation. It's culture, cultural, you know? And, and then on top of that, at the immigration part and the, the shock of uh, transition from one country to another, you know, that we're afraid of, you know, it's a lot, it's bigger than that. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm just going through a different direction, but yeah, it's so much, much than that. Yeah, it really highlights the importance of um, services that we take for granted, such as interpreter services. I know in my short time as a genetic counselor, um, you know, it can be really difficult to access some of those services. And, um, you know, it leads me to think about, you know, um, generally in what other, in what other ways, um, you know I, know, I know a big part of the summit is also focused on digital health. Um, which is something, you know, I think it's a future we were always, run, you know, going towards, but COVID certainly kind of sped up that process. Um, and uh, so, Bethany, I, I wanted to uh, direct this question to you just to give you an opportunity to talk as well. But um, what do you, in what other ways do you think, you know, going towards this future of digital health might, you know, exacerbate or improve um, some of the health equity and access? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Cheyenne. Uh, you know, I can just speak from my small corner of the world uh, in genetics practice and in genetics research. Uh, you know, we have pivoted towards telemedicine since the COVID pandemic and see almost all of our patients virtually now, uh, which, you know, for some people is great. You know, for people with maybe mobility issues, it's really nice for them to not have to come into the office. It can be cost saving for some people. Uh, but at the same time, it's making a huge assumption that patients have access to, you know, high-speed internet and a device to actually contact, you know, the doctor and the genetic counselor. So I think in some ways we're just missing a huge swath of the population, especially the rural population who could benefit from, you know, shorter travel distances, but might not have that infrastructure of the, the high-speed internet. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's definitely a challenge in clinical practice. And then in research, we are trying to uh, reach more community-based healthcare clinics. And we're really trying to expand access as much as possible by having things available like texting communication versus email or phone calls, um, you know, having apps on the smartphone to fill out surveys, uh, really just creating as many resources as possible, you know, videos you could watch on a smartphone. And for some clinics, like in Boston, they're like, this is awesome. Our patients are going to love this. And then from one of our clinics in Birmingham, Alabama, they're like, no one is going to be able to use this. Uh, so it's, it's definitely, we're just trying to create as many options as possible. 
to include as many people as possible, but I do think digital health is, you know, kind of a, a double-edged sword in that way that it can is really beneficial to some people and, you know, really leaving other people behind, unfortunately. Yeah, one of one of the options I know we've we've come across in in our study that we're working on together is um, I know a, I think a clinician had recommended texting. And the idea of like texting a patient is something that never would have occurred to me before. Um, but when I think about right my personal life, I don't always answer calls, especially ones I don't know, <laughs> you know, and I'm definitely more likely to at least read the text, even if I, maybe I don't respond to it, right? <laughs> um, so certainly, certainly, thank you. Um, uh, Shruti or Louise, do you have anything else you'd like to expand on in regards to digital health and in our case, we noticed that, um, you know, we've been trying to reach to, to the families. We, um, and my background is in marketing, so I'm like very about um, push social media, you know? And then the families start reaching out through Facebook and Instagram, but then TikTok happened. So people are reaching out to, through TikTok now. And, but it was, we still, we were having a hard time to people to reach out to us. You know, it was just through like the message under the, the post and, st and stuff like that. Um, so I decided to get an additional phone and just use it for the WhatsApp messages. <clears throat> and that's how we got, you know, a lot of the families to reach out to us. What we noticed is that uh, the Hispanic and the Hispanic population use a lot WhatsApp you know and we noticed that after each webinar that we had that's when we start getting all these messages you know so at the beginning i was um we were i was uh, answering every single message but it was crazy because people do not understand that uh people have a personal life as well and i have kids <laughs> so you know they were texting at any time any day and then like hello 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 like uh it's midnight here you know um so i just you know uh basically put a little automatic message we will reach out to you monday through friday nine to six and uh even though we work after hours but um and then i reply with a a link to a um a survey so whoever answered the survey, that's the people that we reach out. Because like I said, before we were back and forth, back and forth on messages and, and we couldn't get into nothing in a specific. So now that they fill up the form and we ask, what are you guys basically, what is your request? What do you need? And that is a lot easier for us. And then uh, Caro, which is our, our, our um, assistant, she goes through all the messages and said, you know, this, uh, I can handle this, you can handle that. So we send it to different uh, people in the organization, well, it's only uh, four of us, but, <laughs> and then Maria, our um, director of social services, she mostly handle all of them, you know? Uh, so if they need uh, help uh, <clears throat> with information on clinical trials, or, you know, they need a wheelchair and we don't have the funds for that, but there's another organization who does, you know, we try to, accommodate them like that. So yeah, I mean, WhatsApp has been really, really helpful for us. I just wanted to add to that, um, to what Bethany and Louisa said, for, for what they call these care deserts, right, where, you know, deep rural places or places, you know, because of um, the financial burden of it, not having 
um, intranet service or a smartphone or whatever. These care deserts that are, that are now we've identified, I think the way to, to reach them is really through grassroots community organizations, people going door to door with flyers and things like that. But then that also brings up the fact of um, trust in, in the community services and the community organizations. Um, these kind of strategies will work efficiently and will be helpful if the people that you're serving trust the community centers and trust that you're, you know, people knocking on their doors are not just, you know, random people that they ignore. So, so I think digital health, of course, maybe for the majority of people will, will work very well, including telehealth and all that that entails, WhatsApp and things like that. But I don't think we can trivialize the impact and the need for grassroots, you know, community health workers going door to door and educating people. Yeah, it's 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 one thing to um, you know create resources. It's another thinking about how do our participants or patients actually access them. Um, so I'd love to get some more thoughts on um, thinking about, you know, in, in what ways might, um, might our, um, might individuals access some of these resources and what might um, be the best way to, to get it to them? I, I can, I can start that the discussion off a little bit um, based on my work with Global Genes. We have an initiative that we're working on with Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, um, where we're creating print and social content um, to educate people, particularly people of color, on the importance of talking to your family history. Why should you know that and how will that impact your health? Um, and so we have found it to be challenging um, for, for black people, for Hispanic people to really access that care, that, that information um, to, to let me let me rephrase it. We found it challenging to find places where there are trusted resources for those communities. Um, and after having talked to a bunch of people and and understanding the problem, it seems that community clinics that are run in those communities, um, as well as faith-based organizations, so churches and you know Catholic archdiocese or uh, you know the Baptist churches in those areas are trusted. Um, sources. And so if we can um, distribute our educational material or our campaigns through those kind of resources where people come, they trust, you know, my pastor is telling me this, that it's important for me to talk to my family about this and that. I think those are good ways to really um, have people access um, care through these trusted places. And I just wanted to also um, just touch upon really quickly that Global Genes has a, um, in my mind, very unique and uh, service called the Rare Concierge Service, and you can access that through Global Genes' website, where an individual who has access to technology, unfortunately, can can fill out a form and get their specific question answered about rare disease, genetics, clinical trials, treatments, or just can you connect me with someone else in the world who has my disease, right? Um, especially for some of these ultra rare diseases um, or just someone to, to offer emotional support. Um, you can fill out this form and put in your question or not even a question, just say what you're feeling at the moment and a patient services guide will answer that question and link you to other 
foundations and organizations or answer your questions about clinical trials and genetic testing and things like that. So I just wanted to put it out there that this is a great resource, particularly for the rare disease community um, to get their specific questions answered. And I'm not quite aware of um, other large advocacy organizations that also do that. So, And that's exactly what we do, but 100% in Spanish. Because uh, so, we have a psychologist in, in, uh, on staff and then we have our, our, um, our, um, I forgot, <laughs> our ambassador program for, you know, it's this basically what we call a veteran parent who are, uh, we've been, they've been through, through this deal with the disease for more than five, six years. And they, we try to connect them with, uh, newly diagnosed families so that, you know, give them that support that they need. And if they need extra help, we have the, the psychologist. Um, and then like, the, like I said earlier, they fill out the form and we contact them, the director of family services, contact them and not, you know, ask exactly what they need. They go through what they need and everything. So, uh, it's been helping a lot, uh, I think we've been able to connect more with the families that way and help us to, to have a more structure than we had before about, you know, a little paper here, a little paper there, an email here, an email there, tag you here, tag you there. It was just all over. <laughs> yeah. So now it's, it's, it's been helping us. I think we have a better system now and we're still working in a more complex system, but it will be a lot easier at the end. So yeah, we're waiting on, on new software there. Thank you for, for uh, informing us of those resources. I definitely have to check them out myself. <laughs> I think they'd be a great addition to um, definitely some of the work Bethy and I have been doing as well. Um, but um, I know we also mentioned, um, you know, I, I believe there's some mention of like trusted leaders that some of our patients or participants might look to. Um, Truja, I believe you said like, church leaders um, for those who might, you know, follow a faith of some sort. And um, I think a lot of how we learn about some of these resources um, and, you know, who, who do our patients or participants trust um, is through, um, you know, some of the work that Bethany and I are trying to do, such as stakeholder engagement in, in our baby seed project. Um, and so, uh, Bethany, you probably could have already told I was, <laughs> could tell I was getting ready to pivot to you, but I'd love to hear more about your experience and how it's been to convene a stakeholder board and maybe some of the lessons learned and the challenges, challenges faced. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and you could probably speak to this <laughs> just as well as I can. I know you've done a ton of this work, um, but it has been really great getting our board together. So we actually don't have any faith-based leaders on our board, but we do have, you know, we're recruiting infants from this study. And so we do have a couple of midwives who are familiar with delivering babies within the community. We have a couple of former research participants who can use their experience to inform our practices. A couple of people involved in like early childhood education. So uh, really nice perspectives that have been super helpful. And Cheyenne, you mentioned a couple of ways that uh, this board has helped to shape our study. I think one key that has helped with our, our relative success so far is that we engage with our stakeholders super early. So actually, as soon as we were writing the NIH grant submission, so actually asking the government for funding, 
in that initial submission, we actually got letters from about 12 different community stakeholders. So we got their buy-in and they were willing to actually write a letter saying that they supported this work and would be involved. So that was really awesome. And I think this was actually the third time we had asked for funding. So I think that engagement actually really, really helped uh, you know, get our grant over the, the edge and actually get us money to do it, which is awesome. And that was about a year and a half before we even started planning the study. So I'm really hopeful that, that the NIH will continue to recognize that that is a really important part of study design and that will be a continued part of the policy and funding. Uh, and since then, it's, it really has been a partnership. Uh, you know, a lot of our actual research investigators have been in this field for 30, 40 years and are pretty set in their ways. And so I think that's where, um, you know, kind of intermediaries like Cheyenne and I are really helpful to listen to the stakeholder board and, you know, translate those ideas a little bit into actual research recommendations. And one specific study design recommendation actually took a ton of communication, a ton of literature review for me and Cheyenne, a ton of, you know, discussions with the team, special meetings with the investigators, but eventually we were able to implement the stakeholder recommendation in that case. So I think it is a lot of, you know, communication. It's not uh, something that is, you know, it hasn't really been an expectation in the past, but I really think going forward, I'm really hopeful that research does include that more and more. Thank you, Bethany. Um, and just with these last two minutes we have, and uh, of course, I, any of the three of you uh, comment on this, but thinking about, um, you know, we were talking about health disparities, and of course, with that comes inclusion. But I also think about the opposite end, where in trying to include more um, diverse patients participants, sometimes the, the darker side of trying to do that leads more to targeting rather than, you know, for our own personal um, gain rather than for their own. Um, so what is the, what is some of the ways that we can um, try and try to avoid, avoid, you know, tokenizing some of these underrepresented minorities? Um, I'd love any thoughts on that. Sure, that's a that's an excellent point you bring up, Cheyenne. Um, certainly, one doesn't want to be, you know, feel like, you know, um, as a community being targeted. Um, I think it all really boils down to one again, how much trust and reputation you have in the community in terms of your intentions. Um, you know, are you just going in there and seeing, you know, what you can get from the the initiative that you're doing? So I think building trust in the community is important. And then how you how you gear your material and how you message that is is super important, I think. Um, because if it if it's, you know, there's a nuance between the way you say it and, and it, if it I, does it make someone feel targeted or is it truly because you think this community is underserved, it can really value from the initiatives and campaigns and education materials that you're creating or whatever else for in, that'll impact their healthcare. Um, and then like Bethany mentioned, getting buy-ins from different stakeholders that have possibly already established um, connections within these communities. And so again, building that trust that we're, we're not doing this for our own benefit, but a, a benefit that we think will have a larger community impact. Yeah. Okay, so I know we're a bit over time, so that's probably all we have for uh, this session. Um, but I wanted to thank um, 
you know, all of our panel speakers for all the work that you do, of course, and also for taking the time um, to discuss this really important topic on health equity and access um, and with our audience. So thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave us a comment or review. Stay up to date on current conversations by subscribing to Being Rare wherever you listen to your podcast. Connect with us on social media at Sarita Edwards at the Being Rare podcast. Until the next episode, be rare.